Good morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to go to Luke chapter 21 today. Uh, Luke 21, we'll be starting in verse 5, and let's pray and open up the word. Uh, Father, we worship you today. We, we are here because you're, you're great and you're worthy of our worship. We're here because you've drawn us out from, from around this region uh, to be your people who, who praise you and who respond to the things that you've told us in your word. Uh, we thank you for your graciousness to us, that we can draw near to you because of what you accomplished for us on the cross. And, and we pray that again today we would draw near. We pray that you would remind us today as we're in your presence with your people of the most important things. We pray that you'd shape our lives and our priorities with your word, by your spirit. We pray that what you do for us in the word today would equip us to persevere in the faith in difficult days and give us a resolved patience that comes from fixing our eyes on you. So we pray that today we would hear what your spirit is saying to us in your, in your word, the Bible, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hopefully we are um, entering into the last months of the pandemic, and this has been uh, a year of, of huge upheaval, so much of the stuff that we knew to be steady and normal and dependable and, and the stuff that seemed perm permanent got shaken and some of it collapsed. And, and while the future may look brighter for us now than it has all year, there's still a lot of uncertainties as we look to the future. And in these times of shaking and uncertainty, we've had this year a unique window into the responses that people have to all of it. Um, this pandemic wasn't you know, all that unique in human history. There have definitely been pandemics before in our country. There have been plagues. There have been problems with government. There have been shutdowns, is issues about masks. Like, that stuff's not new at all. But what is new is that we have this window into so many hearts on social media to hear from so many people what's going on in their hearts and their minds as we've gone through all this. And we've seen some Christians who have been more gracious and kind and servant-hearted toward others than they, they ever have been before where the fire of this year has refined them. And there have been others for whom the, the collapse and the shaking and the uncertainty of it all brought about panic and fear and anger. And Jesus has a word in this passage for Christians who live through times of quaking and collapse and uncertainty. He calls us to a really specific way of living and thinking in times like these, and worse than these. And if we, by his grace, live out some of the things that he's called us to here, we'll find, as you'll see in this passage, unprecedented opportunities for the spread of the good news of Jesus without our having to deny that things are, are bad and hard and difficult. And what he calls us to here is to be people of joy and peace in and through it all. And so in today's section of scripture, Jesus is leaving his disciples with some really important words for the world that they're going to be living in that is going to be completely falling apart. And these are important words because Jesus spoke them in this last week before he went to the cross. They're among the last words that Jesus left with his disciples. And he spoke them to prepare them for the collapse of their world that was coming, to prepare Christians through all time for the shaking and the collapse of, of their worlds, and then to prepare Christians who live to see the return of Christ for what they'll be going through as well. And this is probably the most difficult passage in Luke's gospel to grasp and to understand. Um, throughout the ages, teachers have disagreed on some, some key parts of this text. And one of the difficulties is that in this text, Jesus is talking really about not just one, but two future events, or two events that were future at the time that he spoke these things. Um, for one, there was the, the future fall of Jerusalem. 
something that happened in 70 AD, where the temple that they worshiped in was destroyed, their city was destroyed. And so when Jesus is speaking these things about 40 years before that, that was still future. And so he was talking about that date and that fall that was to come. But then he was also talking about something that's still future for us, which is the the end of days culminating in the return of Jesus. And so throughout history, teachers have disagreed over which bucket to put these things in. Did they come in the the near future bucket, the 70 AD bucket, or were they all end of the world type issues? And there are some things that are very clear. You know, the destruction of the temple was really clearly 70 AD. Um, Jesus coming on the clouds in great glory um, didn't happen in 70 AD. That's an end of the world thing. Um, But there is a lot of discussion about what goes in that near bucket and far bucket with some of the the in-between type events. And there are also some events that really fit in both buckets because there are similarities between these two things. And, And the goal today is not going to be to be able to give the definitive answer and sort out all these questions. You won't come out today with like a definitive timeline and perfect order of end times events. Uh, We certainly won't be setting a date for the return of Jesus at all today. Uh, One teacher said that we're on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee when it comes to the return of Jesus anyway, so we don't know when he's returning. Uh, we, We don't set dates, we don't know the timing of the end. As Mark Twain said, fewer than half of all the predictions for the end of the world have ever worked out, and so so we don't even try. And, and more authoritatively than him, Jesus said in Acts 1-7, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. So we aren't told about end times events so that we can put them on our Google calendar and so we can kind of plan for that day when Jesus returns. We're also not told about these events so that we can change them. I think this is important because sometimes people read these end times passages and they kind of turn them into like sci-fi action movies in their head. Where, where Jesus comes to us and he says, bad news, there's sinister characters out there, they want to inject you with a microchip, and your job is to stop it. And if you don't, the world's going to end. But none of these end time passages are Jesus calling us to do anything to stop it. He didn't prophesy the end so that we would become preppers who stock up on all of our resources so that we can endure the impending tribulation. But he tells us these things to make us a unique kind of people in times of upheaval. And so so we'll pick up in in 21, verse 5, we'll just walk through this text. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So they're in the temple of Jerusalem, and from accounts of historians, this temple at this time was absolutely magnificent. Um, it was, was massive in size. Just the retaining wall that this temple was built on in the southeast corner, just that retaining wall, the foundation, was 15 stories high. Um, there were individual stones, according to one historian, that were 60 feet long. And then on top of just the, the size of the whole thing, that it was built like a tank, there was also the, the ornate beauty of the place. Stuff was covered in gold all over the place, so much so that when the sunlight shone on the temple and they were looking at it from down at the bottom of the hill, they said it would look like a snow-capped mountain because of the reflections that were coming from there. There was a gate that went into the temple area that was totally overlaid with gold. Uh, Hanging over that gate, there was this carved bunch of grapes as tall as a person, also overlaid with gold, walls overlaid with gold. Um, It was majestic, and you couldn't show up in that temple and not talk about the temple. It was too beautiful, it was too big, it was too amazing. Um, It was likely that you had never seen any other building that compared to the temple when when you went there. 
And so Jesus overhears some guys talking about the, the beauty of the whole place, and he looks at them and he says, but it's getting torn down. And this would have been a shocking thing to say for a number of reasons. I mean, one, this place was huge and just seemed like if any building was permanent, it was this temple. So what kind of cataclysm would it take for this temple to be torn down to the ground? I mean, what would it take for individual stones that are over 60 feet long to be knocked down so that there's not one stone upon another? What, what kind of horrible thing would happen? And then on top of that, this building is so important. Not only is it big and it would take something major to knock it down, this building is the center of their religious life. This was a building that God had given them the designs for. This is where they offered their sacrifices. This is where the nations came to meet with God. It was important for the religion, and then it was also important for the nation. This was the building in the nation of Israel. And so for Jesus to say that that building is coming down would be the equivalent of someone saying that the White House is coming down. It would represent the fall of a nation. And nobody thought that that would happen. Certainly not, at what, you certainly wouldn't have the Messiah in the temple saying that was going to happen. Remember, Jesus was the Messiah, and they all thought that what he was going to do when he got there was kick Rome out. Rome was ruling and reigning over Israel. Israel kind of existed something like a state with Rome over them, and the Jews hated that. And so they expected that when the Messiah would come, he would come into Jerusalem, he would kick out Rome, he would kick out the oppressors, and that would make the Jews the strongest force in their nation again. But here's Jesus saying, it's actually going to be the opposite of that. Rome's going to come in, they're going to destroy this temple, they're going to destroy this city, and this would mean for the Jews a return to captivity like in Egypt. It would mean being scattered among the nations, which for them was moving backwards. That was not how they thought their history would go. They thought the Messiah would come and they'd rule and reign again. And here's the Messiah in the temple and he says, this whole thing's going to be torn down. And then sure enough, just as Jesus predicted in AD 70, the temple was destroyed by Emperor Titus. He laid siege to the city. The city was destroyed, and he went in, and he said, give extra special care to making sure that that temple is raised. And he did such a thorough job of destroying that city that for hundreds of years after that, people would go there, and they could almost not believe that anybody had lived there. It was so destroyed. And on top of the destruction of the buildings, there were, by one estimate, 1.1 million people who lost their lives in the destruction of that city when Titus came in. And so here's Jesus predicting that about 40 years before it happened. And there were a couple of reasons for that. We saw one last week is that they had turned this temple that was supposed to be a light to the nations into a place that robbed the poor and robbed widows. And Proverbs 15:25 says, the Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. So they were no longer being good to the people that they were supposed to be good to. But then above and beyond that, this whole temple, the, the reason it existed was to point people to God. It was the place where people from all around the world would come and hear from God's word. They would worship God together. They would see the believing community. Sacrifices would be offered to remind them that one day blood would need to be spilled for the forgiveness of their sins. And here comes Jesus, God himself, into the temple. But instead of pointing people toward Jesus, it's the temple authorities that are going after Jesus to destroy him. So they've been arguing with Jesus, butting heads with Jesus, and, and at the end of this week, they will kill Jesus. That's what happens at the hand of the temple. And so the temple is now no longer fulfilling its God-given purposes. 
You remember what Jesus said on Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in Luke 19, verse 41. It says, when he drew near, the, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So he says, you guys are supposed to be pointing the way to me and you miss me. So the temple is no longer serving its purpose. And so it's going to be brought to an end. And so Jesus announces that. He says there's going to be an end to this age, an end to this temple, an end to this nation. And so they asked the first question that we would ask in verse 7. It says, so they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And then Jesus responds, first by telling them the things that will take place and must take place, but that are not the signs of the end. So verse 8, it says, And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So first, Jesus tells them that the age that they're going to enter into is going to have lots of false teachers. There are going to be a lot of messiahs, a lot of people saying, I'm the one, come follow me, or that the end is here. And he says, that doesn't mean that the end is here. There are going to be a lot of folks who come along and set dates. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. They're wrong. They don't know. They're wrong about the end. And then he says on top of that, that there will be wars and conflicts, wars and rumors of wars. And he says that those are also not the indicator that it's the end of Jerusalem or the end of the world. This is important because this is the opposite of how we often interpret major global upheaval. We see a big war that erupts and we say, well, that's it. This is a sign. This is the end of the world right here. And Jesus said, no, these wars and things, they're, they're going to happen, but the end will not be at once. So notice the first thing, though, that Jesus tells them to do in response to all this. He says, do not be terrified. He's describing terrifying things. I mean, for their city to fall, for their nation to fall, for their temple to fall, it's hard to imagine anything that would be more terrifying to the people that he's explaining this to. And still, Jesus says to them, in all of it, don't be terrified, don't be afraid. He repeats to them, in this context, one of the most often repeated commands in all of the Bible, do not be afraid. Jesus wants his disciples in their day and in our day not to be terrified even when terrifying things happen. And the reason he says not to be afraid is because verse 9, these things must take place. In other words, these events are unfolding in order and they're unfolding according to God's plan and sovereignty. God is over all things. God is in control of all things. And again and again, when Jesus is telling us not to be afraid, not to be fearful, he reminds us of that truth, that God is in control. That's the truth that steadies us and and helps us not to be a fearful people, even in a world that could give us every reason to fear. Listen to what he says in Luke 12, verse 6 and 7. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered, Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. 
So if God's in control of events, if God cares for his children, then God's children don't have to panic because of events. He says here that, that even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God watching it, so certainly nothing will happen to you without that happening under God's control. And so we look at COVID, and, and I don't think that the events that surrounded COVID are signs that the end of the world is at hand. Um, there have been plagues that have happened throughout history. Global chaos has happened before. There, there's been government overreach in lots of countries before. I think sometimes we can get very like American-centric where we, we think, well, if it happens here, that must be the end of the world, even though it's happened in a lot of places at, at a lot of different times. Um, there's been wide-scale change that's happened in cultures, and the world didn't end. Now, this is not to say that everything is good. This is definitely a time of significant upheaval. Nobody would say that, that what's going on is good, but they're just not necessarily signs of the end of the world. But even if they were, even if the events that we've been witnessing this year, even if these are end-time events, Jesus says, still don't be terrified. Which makes so much of the Christian panic that we've seen this year completely unjustified. Because Jesus is describing to these guys really cataclysmic end of their world and end of the world events, and he says, still, don't be terrified, don't panic. And it's not that we don't feel the losses. It's not that we like it when good things get ruined or anything like that. Not at all. Jesus wept over the city, and, and he wept over what the fall of that city would mean. But still, we're commanded not to freak out. Because we know that even when we don't understand and we can't control things, the one who does understand is still very much in control. Listen to Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk is a prophet, and he's also looking forward to some days of judgment, some scary times, and this is how he describes it. Habakkuk 3.16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. So you can hear his resolve here, where he says, okay, things are bad. There are things that I'm afraid of, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. There's reason to tremble, but still, I'll find joy in God. Christians are not supposed to be people who are driven by fear. People who study persuasion say that one of the most powerful motivators, if not the most powerful motivator for people, is fear. That if you can get people afraid, then you can get them to act. You can get them to do things. And politicians know this, and so every election cycle, they stoke our fear. Uh, our fear of what would happen if, if the other person won. And so, so because fear persuades people and because fear sells, we all live in a media environment that stokes all kind of fear, and it can make threats seem bigger than they are. It can make decisions seem more urgent than they are. And there's so many messages that we hear all the time that are just designed to make us panic so that we act. And so we're constantly being sold fear. We're constantly being told to fear. And as Christians, we should be people who recognize that and who can see through that. But even when things really are terrifying, 
even when they are really things to be afraid of, we resolve like Habakkuk and say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Don't be terrified of these things. They must take place, Jesus says. This is what we're called to be. We're, we're called to be steady, rejoicing people in a world of fear and chaos. And whether the chaos is end times chaos or not. I mean, even if the worst is true about everything that we, we ever read in the news, we're called to not be terrified. Because we are people who at the very center of our faith have the cross. And the cross was the place where God took the worst of all human events. He took the worst evil that has ever been perpetuated and he turned that for the unending good of his people and for his glory throughout the ages. I mean, the cross was, was the worst thing that anyone has ever done. It was the worst sin ever committed where the son of God, the perfect son of God, the only innocent one was nailed to the cross. It was the greatest injustice ever perpetuated. It was the worst government oppression there was a true conspiracy that went into making that day happen. It was a bad thing that happened to a good person. It was bad all the way to the bottom. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to us. That God was able to turn the, the wicked plans of men and turn them for his glory and for our good for all eternity. We, we serve a God who has shown us at the heart of our faith that he takes the worst of events and turns them for good. And so we can be people who are not terrified when we go through things that are less wicked than the cross was. Because God will turn those for good too. So regardless of what world we live through, regardless of, of what falls apart around us, we're not supposed to be the panicked ones. We're supposed to be the people of peace. People who rejoice in God, even when the world around us quakes. So Jesus goes on, verse 10, it says, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. There's a lot to see here. I mean, on the one hand, for the, the near-term bucket, these things were fulfilled in the lives of these apostles who heard this. Remember that Luke wrote two books. He wrote the, the book of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two. In, in Luke, you have the story of Christ. In Acts, you have the story of the church. And immediately after Jesus ascends to heaven, you start to see these things being fulfilled in Acts. You see Peter and John brought before a council in Acts chapter four. They're imprisoned in that same chapter. People are, are beaten for their faith in Acts 16. They're brought before governors and kings in Acts 24 and 25. And the whole time, God is giving them words to say so that some of the most brilliant messages ever preached, some of the most potent explanations of the gospel ever delivered were delivered through those people on trial before these kings and governors. And some people, like Stephen, are, are put to death. So these were written for them so that they would know what to expect in those next years before Jerusalem fell, but they're also written for us. Look at the expectation that disciples should have in the world that they live in and how they should react. 
we should expect that the Christian message is often widely rejected. We should expect rejection of Christianity in the world around us. I mean, these Christians, the, the church spread like crazy in those first few hundred years, but they did so in the midst of fierce persecution. After a few hundred years, about half of the empire had become Christian. Um, so there were massive changes that did come about over the centuries. But so many of those early Christians lived through times of really fierce persecution. They were kicked out of synagogues. They were imprisoned. Even parents and family members had them arrested and put to death. And Jesus said, here's what you should expect in verse 17. You're going to be hated by everybody. Now this, remember, was not what they were expecting. They wanted the Messiah who's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem and make them the most powerful people in the world. But here he is, days away from his cross, and he says, no, you should actually expect that you'll be hated. So part of the preparation for living as a follower of Jesus in a broken world is to drop the dream of everything around us being fixed in our lifetime. And to not hold out hope that Christians are going to be the most well-loved and powerful ones. But until the Lord returns, we can expect rejection as a normal experience. I think this is a little bit shocking for us because I think for a number of decades here, we had in, in the church in the U.S., uh, we, we made a lot of efforts to make the church cool. That, that at some point somebody said, you know, people are, seem to be walking away from Christianity and the problem is it's not very relevant. And so we, we built very relevant and very cool churches that seemed like they were very compelling to people around them. And for, for a long time, it even seemed like it worked. I know even for us as a church, our first six or seven years or so, somehow we became like the local hipster church. And I, I still have no idea how that happened. Like, it was never like on a whiteboard where we planned that out. Like, let's be hipster. That'll be, like, it was, it was never a strategy. It just sort of all came together that way because I'm so hip or something. And, um, and so, so for some reason that, that all drew together. But honestly, that was, it seems to me like that may have been one of the last cool and faithful forms of Christianity for, for maybe a long time in our country. I could be very wrong about that, but, but now it doesn't seem like there is a cool, widely accepted, and faithful form of Christianity. Now, I don't want to exaggerate it. I'm not saying that we're being persecuted like they were. I think a lot of the persecution in our day that we call persecution in the United States, at least, um, we, we exaggerate a little bit. You know, we kind of have the LARPer mindset where, where we sort of pretend that we're in a battle where, you know, we're, we're at this war, but really we're just kind of fighting with fun noodles. And then we come back home and say, oh, we're warriors. But I, I don't think we're really being persecuted, not like that, at least not yet. But I do think that at least here in the Northeast, faithful forms of Christianity are not widely accepted anymore. They just aren't cool. And no matter how we dress it up, no matter what we do with the music, no matter what we do with the lights, it, it, there isn't going to be a way to be faithful to what Scripture calls us to and be widely accepted by the world. We just should be prepared for that. And, and we should know that nothing has gone wrong when we go through that. You know, sometimes we'll hear, well, don't you know how, how foolish the Christian message sounds to the world? Well, that's not the reason to change the Christian message. The churches certainly have, have plenty of sins to repent of, like real sins and things that should change in churches, no doubt. In fact, I think our biggest problems often come from within. 
But in trying to, to win the world, we don't repent from believing the Bible. We don't repent from, from holding out faith in Jesus. We do have real sins, but one of them is not faith in Jesus Christ. And so even though we'll, we'll find a constant pressure on social media to change the message, change the gospel, change the standards, make these teachings more palatable to the world, Jesus warned us that you really can't have a faithful form that is palatable to, to the broad culture. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We do believe a message that seems utterly foolish to many who reject it. And so we can expect opposition and rejection. Now, there are miraculous seasons in history where God just grants favor and there's revival and it does seem like people are coming to the true forms of Christianity in droves and we pray for those. We want to see those things happen. But Jesus did, ex did tell us to expect that, that we will be hated by all. And when that happens, we've got an awful lot of hope still to cling to. In fact, look at a couple of these verses together. Look at verse 16. He says, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Okay, that's bad. Um, but then verse 18, he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. He says both of those things. He says, some of you are going to be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. They might kill you, but you'll be fine. He says both of those things. And remember who's saying this. Jesus is days away from going to the cross where he's going to be hated by all to the nth degree. He'll die, and then on Sunday, he'll be fine. And as Christians, we follow in his footsteps. That is God's plan for us. When scripture talks about one of the reasons that God chose us, it, it says that one of the reasons is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Listen to Romans 8, 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what God is doing in us is he's conforming us to the image of Jesus. And part of that is that his story becomes our story. The story of Jesus is that he was hated by all, he was crucified, he died, and then firstborn among the brothers, he came out of that grave. And as Christians, we follow him. So we will feel losses. We'll feel pain. And we certainly don't want that. We don't stir that up. We don't you know, stir up false persecution just by being jerks or anything like that. But the worst case scenario for us, even when things get as bad as they could be, is that we go to the grave like Jesus did and we come out like he did. Jesus rose and will rise too. Again in here, Jesus says that things go according to plan. And even those terrible situations can present to us phenomenal opportunities. Look at verse 13. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This is big because sometimes we think that, that for Christianity to really thrive, then the, the world around us has to be fixed first. We get the world fixed enough so that Christianity can thrive in that culture. And certainly we work on fixing all kinds of things that are broken around us. That's part of the Christian calling, part of what we do with our vocations. We work to fix things all week long. But we don't have to believe that things have to be going really well in the world in terms of its embrace of Christianity for Christianity to do really well. 
fact, he told them that you're going to be brought in front of these governors and these kings, and there's a reason for it. That's planned by God, and it's planned as your opportunity to bear witness. For them, this was fulfilled as they used all those opportunities on their trials to proclaim Jesus all through the book of Acts. Jesus did just what he promised he would do. He gave them words to say so that in a pinch, without any preparation, they preached brilliant sermons that encapsulated the gospel um, that, that we still have inspired in the Bible today. And we can have the confidence they had that, that whatever we might lose in a world that rejects us, and whenever we might have to explain things in a very tense situation, when we have to explain the things that we believe, those are God-given opportunities to bear witness. They're God-given opportunities to make much of Jesus. So the losses and the suffering that we endure in times of chaos are orchestrated by God as a platform for showcasing the glory of Christ, for demonstrating the wisdom of Christ, for speaking the truth of Christ. He's arranged those things for us. We as Christians, in a world of chaos and loss, even when it seems like worst case scenario for us, Christians can manifest God's beauty, truth, and goodness in a world gone mad. Even when the suffering is real, we can expect enough care from God to make real joy available to us. You've probably experienced what this does for your faith. I don't know if you've ever sat with a Christian who's going through just searing, unbelievable suffering and trials, and then they talk about the goodness of Jesus to them in that. If you've, like you're in a hospital room sitting by somebody who is dying, and you hear them speaking of, of what Jesus is for them and how he sustains them and how he's enough for them and how he's provided for them and how good he's been and how much they want to see him. You sit through a conversation like that and you walk away usually feeling like a jerk because I whine about everything in my life. And then and it reminds you that this thing is real. Like you have no, no other explanation for, for that kind of joy in the midst of this kind of sorrow and loss. And John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, he said, some Christians are called to endure a disproportionate amount of suffering. Such Christians are a spectacle of grace to the church, like flaming bushes unconsumed, and they cause us to ask, like Moses, why is this bush not burned up? You see people who are suffering but trusting in Christ, and it makes us go, why? Like, why isn't this consuming them? Why hasn't this destroyed them? He goes on and he says, the strength and stability of these believers can be explained only by the miracle of God's sustaining grace. The God who sustains Christians in unceasing pain is the same God with the same grace who sustains me in my smaller sufferings. We marvel at God's persevering grace and we grow in our confidence in him as he governs our lives. So Jesus warns us of hard times. But he tells us that in all of those, we can expect the care of God. We can expect that the worst case scenario never happens to us. And we can expect all kinds of opportunities for the furtherance of God's kingdom because of those things. And then Jesus says in, in verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. And that word for endurance is, is kind of a, its definition is a combination of like steadfastness and patience. In the New Testament, somebody who's loyal to Christ and faithful and obedient even through sufferings and trials. 
And Jesus says here that in endurance, you, you gain your lives. Which means that endurance like this is a characteristic of a Christian. When we become Christians, God, God makes us persevering people because he promises to sustain us by his grace. We can expect that God gives us everything we need to have that patient, steady perseverance even through the trials that we go through. So compare that to how we often react. We often panic. We often freak out. We often act like all is lost. But he says here, don't be terrified. Expect God's provision. Expect his care. You'll be able to endure. He'll give us what we need. We can go through even the worst of situations with confidence, whether it's the end times or not. When the world around us quakes and falls, Jesus will be enough. And by living like Jesus is enough, we're witnesses to the world of the reality of who he is. We'll just quickly survey the rest of this text. Certainly, we won't be able to answer every question about it. But verse 20, Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are, in the inside, who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so here Jesus predicts what happens in 70 AD. Titus came and he laid siege to the city, surrounded the city with his army. And Jesus had told them, yeah, that's the sign. That's the time, that's how you know this place is about to fall. And the people in 70 AD who believed the words of Jesus got out of that city and they weren't there for, for the slaughter. Those who didn't believe his words were among those who rejected Christ and they were there to see the fall of the city and the destruction of the temple and, and over a million died. And so Jesus said that would happen, and it did. And he said that it would bring in the time of the Gentiles, which are the times that we're living in. And I believe this is the time that's described in Romans 11. It's a, a time when Gentiles come to faith, when, when people who are streaming to God from among the nations, not just among the Jews. And it seems like it ends with a time where people from among the Jews coming to, to faith in Christ. And then at the end of that time of the Gentiles, when, when those times are fulfilled, verse 25, here's what's next, still in our future bucket. He says, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So he describes natural cataclysm and then Jesus Christ coming back on, on the clouds in glory for judgment. And he says, even then, lift up your head. Straighten up because for you, it's a time of redemption. These times of perplexity and roaring of the sea and waves, people becoming afraid. He says, this isn't for your judgment. This isn't for your destruction. This is for you to be redeemed. And so whatever our end is, 
when we see our end coming or whether we're here for this end, Jesus says those are times to lift up our head. Those are still not the times to panic. Because for Christians, the end is redemption. And then he says, and he, he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So in talking about this generation, it seems that Jesus is saying that the generation that sees these things start will see these things finish. It's not going to go on forever. He says to, to be ready for that. And then look at the application that he draws out in verse 34. But watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that that day may come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So he says, in light of all of these things that are going to come at some point, watch your lives. The fact that Jesus is going to return should affect us and should affect the way we live. But we tend to do the pendulum swing thing, we, where we see people who are just obsessed with the end of the world and setting dates, and we see kind of all the crazy that goes with that, and we say, that is not for me, I'm not going to do any of that, it's not for us to know the times or the seasons, and so our pendulum swings the other way, and we don't live in light of Christ's return at all. It's not even something we think about, it's not on our radar at all, but Jesus says, no, that's not the right answer either, the right answer is to watch yourselves. Don't let your hearts be weighed down with drunkenness or, or dissipation, which means like self-indulgence. Don't fix your eyes just on the cares of this world. In light of these things, fix your eyes on your redemption. In light of these things, watch yourself. Don't let your hearts become burdened with the cares of this life because this life ends. And the ultimate moment for all of us will be that moment where we stand before the Son of Man. And he says to pray. Pray specifically that we would have strength to stand when we're persecuted or mocked or questioned. That we'd experience the strength of God to endure hardship and not throw in the towel and not quit. To keep going knowing that that, that judgment day is coming. So we pray for strength, we pray for one another that we would persevere because there is a real temptation to throw in the towel. Whether this end comes upon us or, or a future generation, there's going to be pressure. There's going to be temptation to walk away. So he says pray, pray for the strength of God. And remember the gospel. I mean, remember the main thing that Jesus came to do. Ultimately, what Jesus secured on that cross is going to lead to the resurrection of all creation, things made new, uh, the, the best parts of the end of the Bible where he comes and, and makes a whole new world, a whole new heavens, everything redeemed, everything as it, as it was supposed to be. But the main moment that, that Jesus prepared us for in going to that cross was that moment of standing before God. That moment of judgment. By going to the cross, Jesus took his perfect record of righteousness 
and he transferred it to the account of everyone who would believe in him. By going to the cross, Jesus was judged so that we could be prepared for that judgment day. The one innocent one was declared guilty for our sin on the cross so that we could stand before God and be declared not guilty. So the ultimate way that we prepare for that judgment, the best way we prepare for that day is to trust in Christ, to trust in his cross, to believe in him because the scriptures say that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. To repent of our sins, to repent of unbelief, to cling to him, and to wait for that day when he returns and judges because one day all things will be made new. When it seems for us like the end is near, lift up your head. Rejoice. There's, there's redemption coming. Even the worst case scenario here on earth is not the worst case scenario for a Christian because just as Jesus went into the grave and came out, even when we go into the grave, we come out too. So there's good news in all of this. Let's pray. Well, Father, this year, as, as the world shook around us, it revealed our hearts. It revealed our priorities. It revealed our source of joy. At times, our anger and our panic revealed what's precious to us and where our hopes are. And so we confess our misplaced priorities. We confess our misplaced hopes. We confess how oriented on this world we've become. But Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that though we have stumbled along, you persevered perfectly to the end and you gave your life to redeem us. Though we get led astray and we get tempted by this world, you were tempted and were without sin. Thank you that you perfectly loved your father all the way to the end. Thank you that even as you faced the cross, you did so for the joy that was set before you. And thank you that that perfect record of righteousness that you took to the cross has now become ours by faith. So thank you for your forgiveness. And Spirit, we pray that you would fill us so that we would follow you. Fill us with joy even when the world around us quakes. Even when we don't understand, even when we don't know the future, even when there are all kinds of things around us to make us afraid, help us to be people who are not terrified and who don't panic, who expect your care, who experience your care, who persevere with a steady patience, even if the world rejects the, the message of Christ and rejects us because of it. Make us people who rely on you. And even when everything around us falls apart, let us be like Habakkuk and say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Give us that kind of gospel confidence so that we can live with joy even in times of great sorrow and great fear. Make us the steady and patient and joyful ones and give us many opportunities to speak the good news of Jesus because of that. And Father, I pray that you would draw even more people to yourself by faith as, as they hear the good news of Jesus preached by people who are steady and joyful in the midst of a world of chaos and sorrow. So prepare us for that. Make us that. 
change us into people who respond to these things the right way and have your glory in and through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name.